I hope that today you are ready for a challenging bit of scripture and you are ready for even just a little dose of controversy as we look at the Bible together. We are in a teaching series this autumn in the book of Revelation and we are calling it A Certain Future. And even this week, our sense of uncertainty has ticked up a notch, hasn't it? Uh, as we await tomorrow more government guidelines on, on things, it's not just that we're uncertain, but it, it points to the fact that we have even less control over this virus than I think we thought we would. And I don't know about you, but I would say that probably I'm at kind of my peak level of uncertainty throughout certainly the last few months of when is this whole thing going to end and when is life going to start to look like normal? And I'm sure uncertainty is not the only emotion that you're feeling. Maybe there's frustration, anger, dot, 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 dot. I won't extrapolate all of the emotions we might be feeling. But I think rooted underneath it is uncertainty. That if we had certainty, if we knew when all of this was going to be over, it'd be so much easier to cope. But the lack of clarity over it, it just makes it so much more difficult, doesn't it? And we are in this series, A Certain Future, for the very reason that we have so much uncertainty surrounding us at the moment and we feel immersed in it. And part of that is because we are looking and all of us have a natural tendency to do this, to find our certainty in the things of this age. So many things that we have been so used to being certain that it's felt like we could put our certainty in things like, I don't know, the economy or always being able to catch up with friends and things like that. But with those things taken away, we're realizing we really can't trust in those things. We need to look for something else to put all of our confidence and our hope in. And so we are looking at the things of the future, the things that we can know are definitely gonna happen and are never gonna be moved and are not subject to government restrictions and changes at some point in the future. And so we're looking all the way to the end of times, all the way to the end of the story of creation and the beginning of the next creation or the new creation and in, in looking in the book of Revelation to Together. And in doing this, we're, we're engaging with how are things going to end? What does this certain future look like for us? And in doing this, we are actually doing a very New Testament thing in that we are training our minds and getting ourselves off the, the scene and the, the material things of now and casting our hope and saying, look, we can't trust those, they're fragile, but we can trust in and we can put all of our hope in that which is to come. And as we engage with all of that which is to come when, and, and kind of get in the thought world of that, we can learn more and more to get our confidence and put our hope in that. And also, it, by its very nature, what we're doing in this series, as well as, as looking for a place to put our certainty, we are also intentionally engaging with some of the more challenging passages that you find in Scripture. And there is a worrying trend going on in the Western church at the moment. And, and part of that trend is that Bible engagement, particularly on an individual level that we would choose to do, Bible engagement is absolutely plummeting. And you would think maybe that um, the, the, the pandemic and lockdown might have served to increase people's use of, their, of the Bible in that own time. But I was reading an article in Christianity Today that says that 
in the in the pandemic not only has it continued but it's got even steeper the decline of bible engagement and i don't know about you but i would imagine that in this zoom call and those watching on youtube we would be a people that says no we want to be part of the reverse of that trend we want to be the resistance against that we want to be a people that know our bibles and each of us would probably say I'd love to read my Bible more. I'd love to want to read my Bible more and have, I don't know, an increased level of confidence in my Bible. And that is our heart at Revelation Church. We want to be a people who are confident in God's word, who trust in it and believe it and know it. And part of what that looks like is engaging with some of the more challenging parts of scripture. Because as we as we do that, as we allow ourselves to approach scripture and get confused by it and get challenged by it and maybe even allow it to make us feel a bit uneasy and it leaves us in a place of not having all of the answers that we might be looking for. As we do that, it actually makes us more confident in the Bible as we tackle some of these passages that we might otherwise just think, oh, that's too intimidating, I'm leaving that. And actually, as we engage with it, we start to see, even though it's confusing, there is life and encouragement and, and godliness to be got from it. And that as we say that even the, the challenging bits of scripture, we can get some of that from, it starts to make us into more resilient disciples. And as we become more resilient in our faith, we're able to stand even firmer in the things of God. And as we're able to stand even firmer, we we're able to stand with, with greater certainty to ride out and live in the wild, uncertain ride that 2020 is. And so the whole thing comes full circle. So I hope you're up for it today. We are in part four of our Revelation series. Um, so it is, I'm calling today's message, The Thousand Years. It's that simple. And we are gonna be reading from Revelation chapter 20 and from verse 1. So we're going to read the first 10 verses of that passage together. Here we go. It should, here it is. It's, it's appeared on the screen. Let's read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the, sea of the, sand, the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. 
but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's quite a lot to get your head around um, in those 10 verses that we just read out. And what makes this passage so controversial um, or very hotly debated is just the fact that there is there's a number of different interpretations and none of these interpretations have enjoyed consensus in church history for any long period of time. There has always been differing views of what these verses mean. Just a little broad overview then of the passage. Verses one to three, we read about the devil, Satan, being bound and thrown into a bottomless pit and that pit being sealed so that he could deceive the nations no longer, it says. So the devil is sealed in verses one to three. That's the first part. And then the next part, verses four to six, He's sealed for a thousand years. That's that's an important bit. You will have noticed a thousand years coming up a lot in that passage. He's sealed for a thousand years. Then verses four to six are the same thousand years. It is descriptive of Christians reigning with Christ during that period of 1000 years. And then the end of the passage talks about after this thousand years period is over, Satan is then released and he is able to deceive the nations, if you like, and gather them up for war. And they go to war against the church, but are immediately defeated and face the final judgment of being thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur. And so my plan for today is a little bit different to what we'd normally do on a, on a Sunday. Is that My plan is that I'm going to lay out the three major interpretations that there have been for these, uh, for these verses um, and lay those out for, for the first half of the message and just, just to recognise the fact that there, is, that there are many different ways of viewing this passage, but there is one that I strongly favour and that I think is the correct interpretation. But I wanted to show you that there are others. And then for the second half of the message, um, I'm hoping to do this all in half an hour, um, is that we will um, look at that, that, that interpretation that I think is the, the more accurate one and see how it shouldn't just leave us in a place of confusion. But as we get our heads around it, it actually should encourage us and inspire us for the role that we have to play and all that we can expect during the thousand years for us. So all interpretations agree that this is talking about the end times. There is no debate and no conflict over the fact that this is talking about the end of history in on earth. And it's talking about the, the events that lead up to the final judgment before then the new heavens and the new earth come in, as we'll see in Revelation chapter 21 in the weeks to come, which is less confusing and less controversial. So I can't wait to get into some of that. But for now, everyone agrees that that's what it's talking about. Where the controversy hinges is on the thousand year period. Different people think that this thousand year period happens at different points in history and means something different. And so then what happens in that thousand years and what it looks like 
is dependent upon partly where you think it comes and also your different interpretations of the book of Revelation. For any interpretation of uh, that we're going to look at, just a helpful thing, I think, is that it fits any interpretation to not necessarily think of the thousand years as a literal 1000 earth years period. But because the book of Revelation is so highly symbolic that actually these thousand years are, uh, are just descriptive of a very, very long period of time, um, a complete period of time, if you like. The number thousand means big and complete in um, in Revelation symbology. So um, it's just just a helpful thing not to necessarily think of it as a literal thousand year period. OK. We're going to look at the three major interpretations. We're going to spend less than 10 minutes on this. If you're new to this, it might feel like a lot of information. But as I say, where we're going to land is we're going to come into land on one particular interpretation and show how this helps us and encourages us and strengthens us. And there's an awful lot for us to take home from it today. So, Alex, if we could bring up the slides of the the we're going to use some slides just to help us visualize it. So here are some big theological words straight off the bat, which Sadly, I mean, these are the only terms that there are out there for these. We are going to look at the, the, the post-millennial view, the pre-millennial view, and the realised millennial view, or a millennial. You might have, if you've come across it, heard it described as. So firstly, the post-millennial view of what these verses look like. And here's a lovely little diagram. OK, here you can see on the far left hand side, the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that denotes that event and what this view says is that Jesus died on the cross he rose again and then the church age happened so that is now our time here and then what the post-millennial view says is that sometime in the future sometime after right now is when the events of one to three verses one to three are going to happen Satan is going to be bound and then there will be an age of peace that follows after that. Now, this is a very, very attractive idea for all of us, I think. Um, there, there, this, this is going to be a time of peace on earth and prosperity for the church, that it takes the, the binding of Satan in verses one to three as, um, as, as Satan being unable to act on earth. And so then the church is just going to go from strength to strength to strength to strength during this time the church will flourish society will become more and more christianized and as the church grows not only are there more and more christians in the world but because the church is growing the presence of god on earth increases and this means as god comes to earth more and more there are fewer natural disasters there are fewer uh, conflicts that things on earth just become overall more peaceful global pandemics don't happen anymore and essentially we end up in a utopia. And then after that time, Satan will return, as it said, just um, just at the end there. But simultaneously, as Satan comes back to wage war on the church, Jesus comes back to defeat him. And that's how it ends. This sounds to us amazing because what it says is that basically time on earth for the church is just going to go from strength to strength to strength. It's just going to get better and better and better. This sounds like the sort of thing that we would love. The problem is that for this view in particular, I think it's very hard to argue it biblically. 
that is the the one thing that comes against it is it's probably the view that has been held let least in the church over the years and I think has the least scriptural support for it. Um, so while it is one of the more popular views, it's certainly not as popular as the other two. So we won't spend too much time on it, but that is a view that's out there. The premillennial view that we're going to go on now is very similar, but slightly different. So this view also says that there is going to be a thousand year period of peace. But where it's different and why one is pre and the other is post is that this says that Jesus is going to return before the millennium happens. One of the things that we've seen in the book of Revelation is that the, the events that we read from chapter to chapter don't necessarily in chronological time follow on from one another. That we might read of something in chapter 6 and then read of something in chapter 9 but the thing in chapter 9 doesn't necessarily happen after the thing in chapter 6. They're just the order that John has received the visions. But what the premillennial view says is that actually no, the events of chapter 19 are immediately followed by the events of chapter 20. So the Jesus returning that we read about in uh, we read about two weeks ago, as we saw that image of Jesus on a white horse, that is then followed in time by these events of chapter 20. So again, it would say we're in the church age now. And then at some point in the future, Jesus is going to return and that will be the binding of Satan that we read in verse one to three. And then what's going to happen is that the saints are going to be physically resurrected when Jesus returns and binds Satan. And then we are going to live on earth with Jesus for a thousand years. And there will be this similar age of this golden age of things just getting better and better on earth as we live with Jesus on earth. And again, this sounds amazing. I just think it's even better than the previous one. It's just from things get better and better and better. But this time we have Jesus with us. It sounds incredible. But one of the, the problems that it has is that in following this timeline, there has to be two different battles that happen. One at the end of chapter 19 and one in the passage that we read. And in these two battles, it almost seems like John is going out of his way to make it clear that these are actually the same battle. He calls them the war. It would be strange for him to call the the war if he was referring to two separate battles. And it appears in the second war that there are people in it that have already been defeated in the first war. And so it looks for all the money that it is the same war been described from two different perspectives. And for the premillennial view to work, they have to be different ones. Also, a, a problem with the, um, with the premillennial view is that, and, and against the postmillennial view actually, is that nowhere in scripture does it seem to describe that life on earth is going to get better and better and better that actually the New Testament description of the church and what we can expect on this age is that we will be, the church will be a marginalized people, the church will be uh, persecuted and that there will be suffering and things will get harder. And so there is nowhere else in scripture to suggest that there will be this golden age and that we will be with Jesus reigning on earth with him. And so that is a real problem for the, both the post-millennial view and the pre-millennial view. 
And so that is, those are the reasons why I don't favor those views, but I wanted to lay them out for us. The view that I would favor and think is the one that is by far the most compelling is the realized millennial view that we have here. And well done if you're tracking along so far and you've caught all of that. If you haven't, this is the view we're going to be working with. So, so maybe just try and dial back in and just, just try and get your head around this one. This one says that when we read in verses one to three, of Satan being bound, we are not reading of something that is going to happen, we are reading of something that has already happened. That at the cross, Jesus bound up Satan. And it's going back in time to describe events that have already happened. This is actually the most plain and clear view of just reading verses one to three on their own anyway. Back in chapter 12, we read of the dragon, the, the ancient serpent, Satan being thrown down and that was an event that was definitely describing the cross. And Jesus himself in his own ministry talked of binding the strong man, very much referring to the cross. And, and that is very similar language here. And so the, the binding of Satan happens at the cross. And so then all of the period that follows after, the thousand years that comes after, is actually the church age. It is descriptive of the time that we are currently living in now. And so then at the end, it is descriptive of Jesus, Satan is released and he, he, uh, he gathers the forces of, of evil to come and fight against the church and Jesus defeats him and returns and judgment then happens. The news that maybe we don't want to hear then about this view is that while the other ones say, hey, life is going to get better and better and better and better, the realized millennial view says, actually, during the thousand years, evil is going to get worse and worse and worse and that life is going to get harder and harder and harder for the church. And I think that that, that, that levels up with the testimony of really the whole book of Revelation as a whole. But also, I think is the only way really to describe in verse nine, where we read about the, the evil forces being uh, numbering the grains of sand on, in the sea. How could there be that much evil around if the church has been in, enjoying this golden age leading up to that point? I think it's the only way to describe it is that evil is somehow able to increase. And so it, at the end, it will look like evil is about to win. The church will look vulnerable, but Jesus will come and defeat evil and, as he returns. So those are the views. And again, just a, a big well done. If you're kind of tracking along and you've got some of that and it's, it's making sense to you, that's, that's fine. If it's your first time engaging with some of these, that might have been quite a lot of information. But I wanted to map out some of the different things and just say, look, there's not always consensus when we look at scripture. But as I said, I think that that final view is by far the more compelling view of the others. And it leaves us though with a very big question. If the influence of evil is only going to increase, what hope do we have? Are we just meant to cling on and just hope and just wait for it all to be over? Are we just meant to get in our, in our Christian bunkers and huddle together, masks on, socially distanced of course, and just wait until Jesus returns? No. You see, the thing is, 
Although it does seem to paint a very bleak picture of evil is just going to increase after Jesus, uh, over the church age until right at the end. Actually, what we see in verses four to six particularly is, I think, a compelling picture of how we are able to resist evil. We are able to see victory over it. In verses four to six, just to look at that again, we, we read of, in those verses, a description of people who have enjoyed the first resurrection. And this is slightly confusing language for us, but um, what it's not talking about here is a, a, a physical resurrection of our bodies that's going to happen. There, there'll be a first one of those and then there'll be a second one. Nowhere in scripture does it suggest that there are two points in history where the dead will come back to life in, in, in large numbers. Rather than talking about first in terms of time and second in terms of time, what it's talking about is the first type of resurrection. It's talking about a spiritual resurrection of all that know Jesus. It talks about in here of souls that have been raised to life with Jesus. And you might recognise that as very Romans 6 kind of language of our spiritual state now. We have been raised to life. We've, if you like, experienced the first resurrection that guarantees that we will receive our bodily resurrection. We have been raised to life in Christ. So in mind here is, is certainly actually lots of saints that have passed away and are now in heaven with Jesus. But is also descriptive of those of us on earth who have been raised to life in Jesus. So that it's talking about it's talking about us and the church in verses four to six. And listen to how it describes us in this period where evil is increasing. It says we're seated on thrones and given genuine and real authority and then in verse the end of verse four it says that we reign with Christ we reign with Christ during this period of evil let's not skip over that for a moment. In fact, John is very keen for us not to. He says it in verse four, we are, the, the church is reigning with Christ. Then in case you missed it, verse six, they will reign with him for a thousand years. John is keen that we do not miss what is going on here. That as evil increases all around, John isn't saying, oh, and this will give you enough to just about get by. He's saying, no, you are going to reign in this time with Christ. He's saying all of the power and the authority of Jesus Christ is going to be given to you so that you, the church, can bring about and live out the victory, the triumph, the kingly reign of Jesus on earth, here, now, today, in Manchester. I find that mildly encouraging that that is what John is saying is our role and we can do right now. This is what it's talking about where it talks about the devil being bound in verse one to three. It's not talking and saying that the devil's now kind of been, he's off the scene, he's been shut away and can't touch the earth. We know that's not the case. We see evil all around us. 
But what it's saying is that in the devil being bound, he has come under the authority of Jesus totally and completely. And so then we, as we have been given this same authority and are able to live in the authority of Jesus, we too can completely know victory and triumph over him and against him. This is hugely comforting, I think. This speaks right into our story right now, that we are, Rob alluded to it earlier, we are surrounded by evil. We are seeing evil upon evil upon evil just through this global pandemic of not just the numbers of people that have died, but the hundreds of millions that have already been plunged into poverty, the lost jobs, even in our church, people I know struggling with with mental health like never before and who knows of the impact that it's going to have on us. We are seeing evil increase and increase and increase in our day. And so we can see ourselves right now that even in the midst of all of this evil, we don't have to fear. We don't have to feel knocked back, but actually we can then come with a confident expectation that we can see the kingdom of God moving on earth, that we have the power and the authority to bring about the kingdom of God because it has been given to us. What does this look like? Well, I think quite simply the power to do all that we could never do in our own strength. Power to finally break free from that habitual sin, sin habit that we've had. The power to live in the freedom that Christ has won for us. The power to lay hands on people when we're able to do that. Maybe lay our hands near somebody to see the sick healed. The power to speak with authority to evil powers. The power to speak the gospel and see lives transformed and lives also like ours raised to life in this day. Even in this atmosphere of evil, seeing the glorious kingly reign of Jesus come about. But it's not just about the power of the, the kingdom. All of these things that we have seen, even in our short life as a church, we've seen examples of each of those. But it's not just about power, it's about presence as well. Notice that it is not just reigning, not just authority, but it is reigning with Christ. That this passage is talking about us partnering with Jesus here on earth and having him with us, of knowing him more deeply, of beholding him and seeing him more clearly, of experiencing more and more of the depth of our union and our relationship with him. That this is the, the vision that John wants to lay out before us, that this is what we can know and experience in this life. I think all of us, most of us on this call would say, yes, I want more of this. I want, this is what I want life to look like. I want to get hold of this. And I think verse four helps us see how we can start to move into more of it. But there's this phrase, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead. And it's describing those who, who receive some of this power and presence of Jesus in their life. 
And those that didn't worship the beast or receive its mark, what it's talking about here is people who refused to compromise or people who refused to partner with evil in order to earn more money or to see more success in their job or to be more popular and get more fame which for the original readers of this letter was a huge temptation. They found themselves in a situation where if only they would say the words, Caesar is Lord, which everybody did, and most the vast majority of the population, of course, didn't mean it at all, but they just said it because it enabled them to do certain things. If they, if they said those words, they would have untold business opportunities open up to them. They would have uh, opportunity to earn all kinds of, all kinds of money but in refusing to, they had to embrace a life of, of poverty. They weren't able to move into all of those things. And then, of course, we see these, the vision of these people who are beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And this certainly means people who were willing to die and give their life for their faith. But also in that, is a beheading was an act of public execution for your faith. It was a public shaming and humiliating of an individual for who they were and what they believed. And so not only is this got in mind people who are willing to die for their faith, but people who are willing to embrace public shaming and humiliation for the testimony of Jesus. That in both of these groups of people, the power and the presence of Jesus is most manifest in those who are willing to have faithfulness to Jesus, whatever it might cost them. That we see here that genuine power and presence, all of the things that this vision that John is laying out for us only comes through genuine faithfulness to Jesus. And this genuine faithfulness to Jesus always comes with significant cost. I think it is really easy these days to want to live as a comfortable Christian. I don't know about you, but I look at my own life and think I, I want all that Christianity has to offer, but I do not want any of the cost. Thank you very much. Can I please just have all of the good things at, at no personal cost whatsoever? We can have our relationship with Jesus. We can know, hey, I'm saved by grace. We can go to church and we can love Jesus. But I think for many of us, we, we do struggle with the idea of and resist against the things that might actually cost us something particularly things that might cause us and lead us into humiliation or, or public some kind of public shaming of some sort in the eyes of other people and the reason I know this is because I know it is true for me every single day I don't want to be humiliated I don't want to take on public public shaming or social rejection in any way. Do you know what I want? I want people to like me. I want people to think that I'm cool. I, you might think there's absolutely no chance of that anyway, but I want, I want to be seen as culturally relevant. You know, every time 
we go flyering as a church. I turn up wherever we are and I set up our tables and I lift up our signs and I set out the flyers on the tables and all of that sort of stuff. And then every time I go to pick up the, fly- the set of flyers and I go to start, and as I start, I think, this is really embarrassing. And then a few people come to walk past and I go to hand them a flyer and they don't take it. And I think, this is really humiliating. People aren't interested in church in any way. Every single time, I do not want to take on the shame and the embarrassment that comes with the public declaration of of Jesus. But the true cost of discipleship often is social rejection, it often is embarrassing, it often is shame at the hands of man. But if we are willing to stand up, if we are willing to take on some of this, the cost of discipleship that is laid out here, we will see the kingdom and the power of God in our age. I was talking to a, a first year um, on a Zoom call the other day, someone that's, that's part of Revelation Church, and they said, I, um, I, I've been in lockdown and so I've been having lots and lots of intense conversations with my housemates and I've been using these intense conversations to talk to them about Jesus and about my faith. And I was thinking, that is it right there. That is what it's all about. There is a perfect opportunity to be rejected with these people who you're gonna be in lockdown with. There's a perfect opportunity to, to be seen as weird or different and embracing it. And it's in those kind of places where the kingdom of God is active. This is the only way we see the power. It's the only way because it's the way of the cross. It's the way where the son of man himself took on the weakest position. He embraced the public shaming and humiliation that was death on a cross. He took it on, he embraced it. He went to the grave suffering, humiliated. And it was only through that that he was raised to a position of authority where he became seated on a throne with the power and with the authority. And he invites us to do the same today. That we too would empty ourselves, we too would think of ourselves much less and much lower for the sake of his kingdom. That I think there's quite a provocative question for us here today, which is simply, how much do you want it? That Jesus would ask us? How much do you want the power and the presence of the kingdom? How much do you want to see it in your own life? How much do you want to see it in the hospital that you work in or in your housemates that you've spent way too much time with already with? How much do you want to see it in the city of Manchester? How much do you want to see his kingdom break out? This is not, of course, saying in any way that we can control or manipulate God and and choose when his presence comes and when his power is displayed. But I do think that there is something here that says, if you are willing to radically sacrifice yourself, you will see more of the power and presence of God at work. And in the final verses, we see just what this is leading to. Verses 7 through to 10 lead us into this image where Satan is released at the end of time and he gathers up all of his forces, the forces of evil, to wage war against the church. And as we saw before, they are numbered 
like the sand of the sea. This is all evil gathered together to come against the church. Let me read you verse nine. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The forces of evil, just picture it for a moment, surrounding this beloved city. The beloved city here being the church. The forces of evil surrounding it. Just think the vulnerable position that the church looks to be in. And the sheer weight of evil that there appears to be in the world. But here we see we can have complete confidence that even though the church looks vulnerable here right at the end the church makes it through the church is still standing the church is here but not just here it's not just survived but it is beloved it is beautiful it has thrived in its own way right through to the end that as we faithfully follow him, as we sacrifice ourselves, as we lay ourselves down, as we embrace the cost of discipleship, this is the promise of where we are headed and what we are building towards. That as evil rages, as, uh, as it multiplies, as it seems to be conquering and surrounding, Jesus is building something beautiful. That here I think we see a picture that we mustn't miss. That yes, evil is going to increase in our age. We see it all around us. That's our testimony, if you like. But here we see that what is also going to grow through it all is the beauty of the church. That the church will be made magnificent and glorious through evil working all around it. That as we do our bit and just hand out flyers and feel the rejection of it or tell our friends about the gospel and have them turn away from us he is building and beautifying his church and we see him raining down fire against evil as it comes against it that he is all of the power of heaven at work to protect and to nurture this vulnerable looking church to ensure that it stays radiant, that it is built and it is seen through right until the end of things. And that although this is an image of that which is to come, I think this is a prophetic image of the future that we can cling to now. I think this is a picture of what the church is called to be in this age, right now. This is the church that we are called to be with evil perhaps surrounding us, we are to be an outpost of the resistance. We are to be a, a small group of people coming against the influence, the increasing influence of evil in our age, pushing back against the darkness. That as we obediently follow him with everything that we have, Although we might find ourselves completely surrounded and it looks so hopeless outside, we look vulnerable, we look powerless, actually we will be radiant and that we would be a people full of the power and the glory and the beauty of God as we follow him. 
I long for us to be this. I long for us to be this church that just we just give everything that we have, whatever it costs us, that we might look this and do our bit of pushing back against the gates of Hades, against evil that surrounds us. I believe that's what we're called to be, that we would shine so beautifully and radiantly against everything else that's around. And maybe you're new, maybe you're still getting to know us and checking us out. I would love to invite you to come in and be part of this as we go on together. That we would be this, this outpost of the kingdom of light that was prayed out earlier in the midst of all of the darkness that surrounds. And I think Jesus is encouraging us and asking us to, to courageously and boldly follow him, whatever it might cost us, in order to be this people. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. I want us to respond to this and, and make a kind of pledge of this. I, I want to give myself to this, Jesus. I, this is what I want my life to be. I want my life story to be of whatever the cost giving myself to build God's kingdom. And what I want to do in a moment is I genuinely feel this could be quite a significant moment for one or two or three or maybe a handful of people today is that I we haven't done this before, but I want to make an opportunity for people to make some kind of active response um, uh, just as a way of saying to themselves and to God, I'm, I'm, this, is a, this is a moment for me in God where I want to I want to see life change and so what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song and then I'll be back in a moment to um to, to make a way for us to to respond in that way but I just I feel like for some people actually you, you're feeling like I have been trying to live Christianity without the cost maybe during these lockdown months you've lost motivation you've lost passion which inevitably leads to us just seeking out things that maybe look a little bit more comfortable I believe that this morning God would have just been waking up a few. Maybe you're a student and you say, actually, no, I, I've lived in a Christian environment, but now is the time for me to say, I'm giving myself to this. I want to build his church. I want to be part of making that beautiful, beloved city that will happen at the end.